Hey friends, this episode of the Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of the Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rulo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we are going to continue on our breast cancer journey, but this time we've made it to metastatic disease. And specifically, we're talking about those ER positive patients with metastatic disease. This has been a really good journey through breast cancer, and we're excited to get into this advanced stage setting. There's so many new advances. There's a lot of data to go through. So whatever we present here, we want everyone to know that check out the website if you're ever confused, pause frequently, there's a lot of stuff and developments, which is a good thing for breast cancer, but it's going to be a little bit technical at times, but we're going to do our best to break it down into simple concepts. Yeah, totally agree. The show notes are going to be essential on this one. A lot of data to go through, but let's get into it. Absolutely. All right, guys, let's roll that show. You guys, before we start today's episode, I do want to pause and talk about something really exciting that's recently happened at the Fellow on Call, and that is us bringing on a whole bunch of new team members. That's great. We've really been wanting to expand, and we're finally at the point where we can take new people on, and the show's just going to get so much better now. Yeah, and I'm just so impressed. They seem like a great crew. I'm, I'm glad that we were able to connect with all these folks. Yeah, absolutely. And the, and these residents and fellows are from all over the country. So really will help kind of ensure that what we're doing here is applicable to places all over the country. And I'm, I'm really excited for, for the future of the show. With that being said, I'm also excited to continue on our breast cancer journey and this time focusing our attention on these ER positive patients. And so Vivek, do you want to give us another a case for this episode? All right, so we have a 62-year-old female with a history of stage 2 ERPR-positive, HER2-negative, left-sided invasive mammary carcinoma, status post-lumpectomy, and radiation with a negative sentinel lymph node biopsy, followed by five years of tamoxifen therapy. At that time, her Oncotype DX score was 14, and she was premenopausal, but she did not proceed with chemotherapy. She was doing well and completed her endocrine therapy, and now let's fast forward 10 years, which is where we're at now, and she develops worsening low back pain. Further evaluation with imaging and an MRI ultimately showed concern for metastatic disease in the L4 vertebral body, and there was a biopsy done that was consistent with ERPR-positive, HER2-negative breast cancer. The first thing that I want to discuss is the concept of late recurrence in these hormone receptor positive breast cancer patients. It really confused me for the longest time of when are these patients really quote unquote out of the window or out of the woods where usually in many solid tumors you say, ah, you've passed five years, the chance of your recurrence is very, very low. Are there good studies to answer this question? I mean, there were a lot of studies looking at this, and, and there was a big meta-analysis from the EBC-TCG cooperative trial group. It's a mouthful. But it looked at the annual rate of distant recurrence for 20 years on. And we'll have a link to that in our show notes. All told, it took over 100,000 women who had ER-positive early-stage breast cancer from that group's trial database. One sort of notable limitation for this meta-analysis was that these trials are run over the course of many decades. So there's a lot of heterogeneity in sort of standard of care treatment and what treatments were offered. 
And we didn't know the HER2 status on many of the patients in the earlier studies that were included. And additionally, only about half of the HER2 positive patients where we do know the status got trastuzumab. So that would definitely change recurrence risk overall. The bottom line is that the risk of distant recurrence is a steady 1% or so per year, extending to the 20-year mark in hormone receptor positive, HR positive patients. If you do read the study, those that had more lymph nodes involved had higher recurrence rates, which makes sense. But it's kind of hard to extrapolate that because of these study limitations. So generally, we say 1% per year over the long term. For those who were disease-free at five years, that 1% trend continued. So this is a sort of a steady rate in hormone receptor positive cancer. It's one of the things that tends to define this disease as its propensity and, and possibility of late recurrence. That really differentiates it from HER2-positive disease and triple-negative disease, where most of the recurrences are early, and then that recurrence rate tends to fall off as time goes on. Got it. So that makes so much more sense as to why there's a little bit of somewhat ambiguity in terms of the guidelines about the duration of adjuvant endocrine therapy, because we see five years, seven years, 10 years, and essentially extended duration may not change the trajectory of the disease over five years, but we know five years over nothing does work. And the luminal type of breast cancer, so that's the hormone receptor positive subtype, have this slow, steady risk of recurrence and likely will become dormant prior to recurrence. And so that's why, as we're alluding to, it's all about that risk-benefit and balancing side effects of patients being on therapies. And so that is why five years is the typical duration that we prescribe for our patients. One thing going along with that, there was recently a breast cancer meeting in Europe where they voted on women with breast cancer how many of the breast cancer experts would give this patient extended over five years of endocrine therapy? And the answers were all over the map. And really, that 10-year mark or that 78-year mark was in generally higher-risk women with lymph node positive disease, many lymph nodes involved. But for those lower-risk women, many people agree that, hey, five years is enough. And there were still some breast cancer experts, even with many lymph nodes, that said, hey, five years is enough because, again, we have this slow and steady 1% per year. All right, so we have this patient who has HR-positive, HER2-negative disease. It's metastatic now. It is critical that we make sure that all of these patients are still hormone receptor-positive, as about 15% can convert to triple-negative status, and some may even have increased HER2 expression. So you always have to, to get another biopsy. And it's important to always biopsy that metastatic site. Are there any other important molecular tests we should be considering at this point? That's so important. Always biopsy the metastatic site. And we repeat the biopsy at the progression of disease in patients with metastatic breast cancer because even before we talk about other mutations, we want to know, has the phenotype of the patient's disease changed from what it was when the diagnosis was first made? So for instance, is somebody like our patient with hormone receptor positive disease in the past still having the same type of disease or has your disease now become triple negative breast cancer, for instance? And so understanding that fundamental question can only be done by biopsying that metastatic site. We also know that there are two specific mutations that can change management, and so these are the additional things that we'd also want to look into if a patient has a new site of metastatic disease. The first is we want to look at the ESR1 mutation. So the ESR1 mutation portends resistance to AI therapy. These are patients that need to be on a SERD, and so these are drugs that end in the term strant, 
such as oral elicestrant or I am fulvestrant. And this is actually going to be found in about 15 to 20% of patients with metastatic disease. And the way that this works is that it is an activating mutation in the estrogen binding domain of the ER receptor. So you need to get rid of the receptor with the SIRD to stop that cell cycle signaling and growth. And you want to keep in mind that this can be acquired over many years of endocrine therapy. So this is why it's important to reassess at the time of disease progression. So the first mutation that we talked about again is the ESR1 mutation. The second one that we want to look into is the PIK3CA or the PIK3CA mutation. And this can help with treatment decision making later in later lines of therapy, especially because now we have more targeted agents. One thing I wanted to add on is that for a very long time, I would get confused when people used brand names of some of these drugs and when they would say which one's a, they would call fulvestrant phaslodex sometimes. So always just Google it if you're ever confused because it's hard to keep this stuff straight as you're getting used to the, all of this. And if you just remember what Ronick said, that it ends in strant for these selective estrogen receptor down regulators, that's going to be your biggest benefit. Let's go back to our patient. We knew that she had involvement of her L4 vertebrae, because that's what we biopsied, and her imaging studies showed that she had bone-only disease. She asked us about her prognosis. Of course, she wants to know what all this means. How would you go about counseling her? Of course, Dan, there's, as we know, there's no crystal ball, right, to predict how someone is going to do. But some studies have tried to evaluate this, and a few studies specifically looked at bone-only metastatic disease, and they found in general that they had better outcomes compared to patients that had metastatic sites of disease at other sites as well. Specifically, there were a couple of studies that we'll include in our show notes, but the highlights of these are that for hormone receptor positive patients, the median overall survival is a little over four years compared to a little over three years when looking at patients with bone-only metastatic disease versus other sites as well. However, that being said, Many patients do live many more years, as I was alluding to, and so really that four years is only the median number that's quoted. So with that in mind, you know, certainly this patient with her single site of disease, now we can provide some reassurance that she has better prognosis. And I think the next question then is, how do we approach her treatment? So one of the main goals here is to avoid chemotherapy, and that's really the biggest first key takeaway is that we're going to start with endocrine therapy and some of these more targeted therapies, but avoid systemic chemotherapy. The reason for this is historically we thought that endocrine therapy may be better for predominant bony disease, while chemotherapy might be better for more visceral disease. Then there was a pivotal Cochrane meta-analysis that resolved this question, initially published in 2003. We're going to link it to our show notes. It's always good to know how we got to the treatments that we're at today. And what they did was they looked at many trials, and again, these are all older trials, so it's very hard to extrapolate that to current times in terms of the actual overall survival and hazard ratios and things like that, but it did give us a comparison of endocrine therapy versus chemotherapy. And what they found was there was no difference in overall survival with less toxicity when comparing endocrine therapy to chemotherapy. The only difference, really, was that tumor response rates were higher with chemotherapy over endocrine therapy, and they were higher by about 25%. So there's a 25% increase rate 
of response when we used chemotherapy compared to endocrine therapy. So really, our first branch point is going to be, do we need a response quickly? If we need a response quickly, you'll often see that being discussed as a quote-unquote visceral crisis, and we reach maybe for a chemotherapy approach because it has a higher response rate, and we knew that since 2003 when this meta-analysis was done. Yeah, and, and of course, our patient has bone pain. Like, we don't want to play that down, but no evidence of visceral crisis. And, you know, this is one of those terms that I would read frequently, you know, going through questions, prepare for boards or things like that. But for the longest time, I didn't really know what qualified as visceral crisis. And so we have a link to the ESMO consensus criteria in our show notes. But generally, we think of things like pulmonary lymphangitis with dyspnea, bone marrow involvement causing cytopenias, diffuse liver metastases that are leading to synthetic liver dysfunction, meningeal metastases, or things like SVC syndrome. Those are the sort of visceral crises, those situations where we really do need an urgent, dramatic response from the tumor with our therapy. And so, like we said, our patient does not have any of these criteria for visceral crisis. So how do we approach endocrine therapy in a patient like ours? Is this where we're also reaching those SERD medications that we don't use in the non-metastatic setting? So the approach to endocrine therapy is actually quite simple. Essentially, you're going to ask yourself, is the patient sensitive or resistant to endocrine therapy? And the way that we think about this, at least let's look at it from the first-line perspective. So the first-line agents that you're going to be reaching for in patients, if they are sensitive, is the aromatase inhibitor. And we define sensitive as patients that have metastatic disease at the time of initial diagnosis, or those that have over one year disease-free interval from their last endocrine therapy. If the patients have had less than one year of disease-free interval from their last endocrine therapy, then we consider these patients to be resistant, in which case you're not going to reach for that AI, you're going to reach for that SERD or steroidal AI, which would otherwise have been second line after the AI. And so I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Non-steroidal AIs end in ozol, while steroidal is eczemustane. And we will also include this in the show notes to help you with some of that terminology. Another important thing that we want to remember in these patients with bone metastases is the use of bisphosphonate therapy or denosumab therapy in addition to vitamin D and calcium. Multiple trials have shown reductions in skeletal-related events, including the requirement of radiation to bone metastases causing pain. So zoledronic acid or Zomeda is dosed every three months, which was found to be the same as monthly in multiple trials. Denosumab is dosed more frequently, and we will also link some of this information in our show notes. So just to recap, in the first-line setting for patients with metastatic disease, you're going to want to understand, are they sensitive to endocrine therapy? If they are, then you're going to reach for the AI. If they are not, then you're going to reach for the SERD or steroidal AI. And then you're always going to want to consider the use of bisphosphonate therapy and vitamin D and calcium in patients with bone meds. That's a really important thing to understand that this is our backbone. This is going to be the important backbone for our first few lines of therapy in the metastatic disease. And you might be wondering, well, why not do a SERD instead of an AI, even if they're sensitive, even if they've had this longer disease-free interval or de novo metastatic disease? And there were multiple trials looking at this, and we'll link them to our show notes, and there was no benefit in PFS or OS. And things like a SERD are an IM injection. 
this fulvestrant is an IM injection compared to something like letrozole or anastrozole, these non-steroidal aromatase inhibitors, which are just pills. So in our case, guys, our patient was postmenopausal, and it had been over a year since her last therapy. She also did not have an ESR1 mutation when we, when we assessed for that. And so she was started on letrozole, which, as Vivek alluded to before, is also called Femara, for her endocrine therapy. We've alluded to the use of CDK4-6 inhibitors in addition to AI, and we did talk about these in the non-metastatic setting previously. So maybe now's the time to talk about how we use them in the metastatic setting. Let's talk about these CDK4-6 inhibitors. The growth of ER-positive breast cancer rely on something called cyclin D1. This gene is amplified in about 15% of these cancers, and it's one of the key genes promoted by estrogen receptor signaling and that sort of mitogenic signaling you get from that pathway. Cyclin D1 activates CDK4 and 6, promoting the cell cycle. So three CDK4-6 inhibitors were developed to try and target this. They all have different side effects, and you can refer back to our farm episode if you want more information on that. But remember that these are drugs that all end in cyclib. Think about, you know, cyclin-dependent kinase, CDK, cyclib. And so for side effect review, we got palbociclib. That was, I think, one of the first ones that was developed. The main side effect to look out for, neutropenia. We didn't see any benefit in the adjuvant setting, and there was concern for possible less efficacy than the other drugs in this same class, although this is largely speculation. Ribociclib, the main issues here are QT prolongation and LFT abnormalities. Of all the drugs, this is the most selective for CDK4, and it did seem to work well in the adjuvant setting. And we had the Natalie trial that was actually presented just at ASCO 2023, showing that efficacy. And last, we have abemaciclib. The big one to remember here for side effects is diarrhea, but it also has a greater CNS efficacy compared to the other agents. It seems to be a greater influence on CDK2. We know that this also works in the adjuvant setting in high-risk patients based on the Monarchy trial that we discussed previously. There is a small long-term risk of pneumonitis and ILD for this class, so that's just another thing to keep in mind when you're looking at these agents. But let's think about the first-line metastatic setting. There were three randomized phase three trials that looked at the combination of each of these CDK4-6 inhibitors combined with AI versus AI alone. Can you walk us through some of that data, Vivek? Yeah. The thing with each of these trials is they were all powered for progression-free survival and not overall survival, which was a secondary endpoint. So it was underpowered, meaning that we could have a false negative or we could have a false discovery rate of positive findings. Regardless, what we found was all of these drugs improved PFS, palbociclib, ribociclib, and abemaciclib. But only palbociclib did not improve overall survival from what we know so far. So all three drugs improved progression-free survival, but palbociclib did not improve overall survival. And it's important to know before we tested them in the first-line metastatic setting, they were tested in the second-line metastatic setting. And again, all three of them had improved PFS and OS in the second-line metastatic setting. It really brings you to the question of, well, in these trials, if they got these drugs in the first-line metastatic setting and that control arm got endocrine therapy alone and we knew they worked well in second line, did that control arm end up getting the CDK4-6 inhibitor in the second line? And the answer is very few patients. The most data we have is for the trial with palbociclib, and only 27% of patients who progressed ended up getting it in the second line, and we should expect that to be in the 90% range if we were looking at true standard of care for these patients. So again, the sequence of therapy is still under debate and question. We'll get to that at the end of our episode. 
Got it. So first line is CDK46 inhibitor plus endocrine therapy with a non-steroidal AI, and we avoid chemotherapy as long as possible as we talked about before. So how should we then think about the second line treatment options at the time that the patient progresses? This is where things can get a little bit more complicated because of recent advances in the use of antibody drug conjugates. And remember that a repeat biopsy at time of progression is always reasonable. You need to make sure that the hormone receptor status is still the same. You need to know the HER2 status at that point. You need to look for that PIK3CA mutation and ESR1 mutation status if it wasn't previously done on your earlier biopsies. And again, you're going to want to assess for visceral crisis. If they're in visceral crisis, those same rules apply. You're going to want to look for something with a quick response, like chemotherapy or one of these antibody drug conjugate agents. But if there's no visceral crisis, then you do want to go ahead with single-agent endocrine therapy and switch to SIRD. So if they're not in visceral crisis, then you want to proceed down that pathway we talked referenced earlier. If they are progressing on that first non-steroidal AI, move on to a hormonal agent they haven't had, like a SIRD or a steroidal AI. Typically with SIRDs, we're looking at fulvestrin, but could reach for elicestrin if they're ESR1 mutated, for example. There's some details that we'll have in our show notes. And then you can also look to add the following based on some of the other molecular data that you get. If you do see that PIK3 mutation, you can add a PIK3CA targeting agent, in this case, a pelicib. This is based on the SOLAR-1 phase 3 randomized clinical trial looking at apelosib plus fulvestrin versus fulvestrin alone. I'll have a link to that study in our show notes as well. None of the patients in that trial had a CDK4-6 inhibitor, so it's a little hard to interpret the data in the current clinical context. But just keep in mind that the study found that these agents, these PIK3 targeting agents, can be pretty toxic with high rates of hyperglycemia, so sort of metabolic syndrome type picture, diarrhea, nausea, rash, poor appetite. It, it's They're not easy drugs to tolerate. Up to 25% of patients ended up discontinuing treatment because of these side effects. We didn't see an overall survival benefit in the data, but there did look to be a progression-free survival benefit of about two to three months with a higher overall response rate, looking at 35% overall response rate versus a little over 15% for fulvestrin alone. If that gene isn't mutated, if you don't have that PIK3 mutation, you can consider exemestane plus everolimus. And this is an mTOR inhibitor. And part of the reason that this strategy was adopted is because they found that mutations in that pathway seem to be a common mechanism of resistance for endocrine therapy alone. So the idea is, okay, well, maybe if we block that other pathway, we can get a little bit of benefit. It seems, unfortunately, like it mostly just adds toxicity with little benefit when we looked at the, the actual study data. The big trial here to know is the Bolero 2 trial, and that randomized exemestane plus everolimus versus exemestane alone. The big thing to think about with everolimus and these mTOR inhibitors, stomatitis, pneumonitis. Not sort of trivial things to, to, to look at if you're going to add that kind of toxicity to therapy with no overall survival benefit. There was a, about four-month PFS benefit here, but just a lot of issues overall with the trial, including something called informative censoring, which we'll discuss a little bit more in detail in a future stats-oriented episode. But suffice to say, maybe some, some benefit based on a theoretical mechanism, but unfortunately, we just haven't seen as much as we wanted to with it. So guys, in our case, a repeat biopsy showed persistent hormone receptor positive disease. It was also notable for a HER2 that was 1 plus on IHC. 
Molecular testing did not show that PIK3CA mutation that we were just talking about, but the patient did have an ESR1 mutation. She was started on oral elicestrant and did well for 10 months prior to progression. So can we go through how this oral SIRD was approved? Yeah, I'm going to do this very quickly. Bottom line is this. We knew that patients who were in the second line of therapy whether they got, let's say they had gotten a non-steroidal AI in the first line, like anastrozole or letrozole or something like that. The early studies looking at fulvestrant in the metastatic setting started off at lower doses. Then they found out that it actually works better at slightly higher doses. So that was the first big thing that happened. And then they said, well, what if we combine this fulvestrant with an AI therapy? Does that work even better? And they found that response rates are marginally better without a true benefit in PFS or OS. So it's basically adding toxicity by having this dual endocrine therapy versus just single fulvestrant alone. So that's the story behind fulvestrant. Then we started to pick up on these ESR1 mutations and knew that, well, fulvestrant works really well for that, but a new drug was invented, this elicestrant, which is a pill, and fulvestrant's an IM injection. So obviously that's good for patient quality of life to take a pill rather than an injection. So that was the rationale behind this study. It was called the Emerald Trial, and it really randomized patients to this oral elicestrant versus dealer's choice, fulvestrant, a non-steroidal AI, or a steroidal AI, that exemestane, after progression on a CDK4-6 inhibitor plus endocrine therapy. So in that first line, remember, the patient could get an AI or fulvestrant, and you just switch to whatever they hadn't seen before in the second line. That's what this was doing. So it was a good trial looking at what happens in the current era where most of our patients are getting CDK4-6 inhibitors in the first line. And what they found was there was improved PFS, six-month PFS was 40% compared to 20% for those with an ESR1 mutation when they got oral elicestrant compared to fulvestrant, which is why this is FDA approved for the setting of an ESR1 mutation after progression on something like a CDK4-6 inhibitor. All right, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for going over that. So, you know, unfortunately, our patient progresses, again, through her second-line therapy, and at this point, what do we do? You know, we're, I feel like we've gone through all of the hormone targeted therapies at this point. Is there anything else sort of targeted we can offer? Or are we headed towards single agent chemo at this point? So at this point, we want to be moving away from endocrine therapy because clearly the patient has shown that her disease is progressing through the exposure to endocrine therapy. So this is the time where that BRCA mutation that we've discussed a few times so far really does come into play. So if the patient is BRCA mutated, then we would move on with elaborate-based therapy based on the Olympiad trial. In this trial, briefly, we have an overall response rate of 65% versus 36% for standard therapy in the ER-positive group with the BRCA mutation. And in total, there was a progression-free survival that was improved by a little over two months with the use of this agent. But if the patient doesn't have a BRCA mutation, then this is where we're going to be reaching for the chemotherapy. And honestly, guys, as you may see and when you also explore NCCN, it's sort of a choose-your-own-adventure. There's a lot of different options, and depending on who you ask, they have their preference of what they start with. But essentially, unfortunately, you kind of just move through that list and pick agents that they haven't been exposed to at the time of progression or their inability to tolerate the side effects of the medication. 
This is also a time where we want to think about that HER2 status. So we had talked about HER2 in previous episodes as well. We had mentioned the first time we talked about HER2 disease as patients having HER2 low, which we said would be applicable in the metastatic setting. And so here we are. So recall that these patients with HER2 low disease are patients that have IHC 1 plus, or they are 2 plus with negative FISH. And so in this space, we want to be thinking about a drug, an antibody drug conjugate known as trastuzumab deruxtecan, or an HER2. And this will come up again in our HER2 metastatic episode. Vivek, can you tell us a little bit about what led to the approval of trastuzumab deruxtecan? Because this is the first time we're talking about this agent. Yeah, the, the key thing here is there was a trial called the Destiny Breast 04 trial. I don't know why it was called Destiny. I guess it sounds fancy, so we might as well do that. But what this trial did was it included all HER2 low patients, meaning they could have had hormone receptor positive disease with HER2 low status or triple negative breast cancer with HER2 low status. And these patients had to have progressed after one or two lines of chemotherapy, regardless of their CDK4-6 inhibitor use, meaning that they did not have to have CDK4-6 inhibitor use. What we found was they were randomized to this antibody drug conjugate versus usual standard of care, one of these single-agent chemotherapy regimens, the choose-your-own-adventure. And in the hormone receptor positive group, there was an improved PFS median at 10 months versus 5 months, and overall survival was improved at 24 months versus 17 months. The issue with these findings, so it's great, right? We've improved PFS, we've improved OS with this new drug. The one issue with the findings is it's a little bit difficult to interpret because 30% of patients in the control arm did not get a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So it's hard to know what if they did get a CDK4-6 inhibitor, are we still going to see this as big of an increase in PFS and OS? That's still an unanswered question, but we do know that this leads to very good response rates and it has clear activity, a reason why if a patient needs it in visceral disease, highly symptomatic disease, you would still reach for this drug. The other thing that we can do for patients, let's say they weren't HER2 low, but we gave them their single-agent chemotherapy, and we had a couple lines of that. And after two lines, three lines, four lines, we're like, wow, maybe the single-agent chemo is not going to do the trick. And again, many of these women go through multiple lines of chemotherapy. Then we reach for another antibody drug conjugate called sasituzumab govatecan. And this is an antibody to trope 2, which is universally expressed on breast cancer cells. So it's kind of one of those things that you don't need to test for it. You can just give the drug. And there was a phase 3 trial that included hormone receptor positive, HER2 negative, metastatic breast cancer patients who had at least two lines of systemic therapy that included a CDK4-6 inhibitor. So again, more representative of the population that we see today. And they were randomized to this antibody drug conjugate, the sasituzumab govatecan versus investigator's choice, which, again, any chemotherapy that they wanted to choose. The median PFS was six months from four months, so just an improvement of about two months in median. And the PFS rate at one year was 20% compared to 7%. Overall response rates, about 20% versus 14%. So you're not getting this huge paying for your buck that like you're seeing in the HER2 low setting, where you're seeing that much greater responses, but this still does have good activity in heavily pre-treated patients. So the question is, what if you push that up more, would we get an even better response for our patients? But again, this is still a little bit unanswered. 
And the last thing that I want to talk about with the chemotherapy choices, you can really go in any direction like Ronick said. One of the key things that I wanted to mention is the use of capecitabine. So that's that oral 5-FU medicine. You can do that on a seven days on, seven day off schedule, which is better tolerated. And there was a trial that looked at different schedules for that that we're going to put in our show notes. Check it out if you have time. It's just good to know that you can do it with that dosing strategy, which is better tolerated by patients. Wow, that was a, that was a lot of information, but I think, I think we covered a lot of important stuff here. Remember, big points in hormone receptor positive breast cancer, late recurrence tends to be the name of the game, about a 1% per year, extending all the way through 20 years after initial diagnosis of recurrence. And another key principle is anytime you're dealing with metastatic disease, it's critical to rebiopsy that metastatic site. You have to know how the disease has changed since it came back. In this case, we're looking to see is the hormone receptor status the same as it was? Is the HER2 status the same as it was? Are there other actionable mutations now in the disease that have evolved over the time that it spent sort of growing back? A sort of another foundational principle in the treatment of metastatic cancer is moving stepwise through different lines of therapy. In this case, if patients have had one year or more disease-free interval from stopping their aromatase inhibitor, you can re-challenge them with a non-steroidal aromatase inhibitor. But if they're resistant, if they've had a recurrence more quickly than that, then you want to move on to second line, steroidal AI or one of the SIRD drugs. Beyond that, we're looking for targeted agents, opportunities to hit specific mutations. And remember, combining the aromatase inhibitors and other hormonal agents with the CDK4-6 inhibitors can add a little bit of response as well, although they do have their own toxicities. One more thing that we really want to mention is don't forget to think about clinical trials. A lot of these new drugs are coming out in the metastatic setting because after you get to a certain point with deeper and deeper lines of single agent chemo or whatever your next line of treatment is, we're looking for opportunities to find stuff that may work in breast cancer. And those next drugs are often tried in these multiply relapsed disease. So keep clinical trials in mind and always have a lookout for, for ones that your patient might fit. That was a great summary, Dan. And, you know, couldn't have said it better myself with the way you laid that out. And the other thing I wanted to say, if you're in visceral crisis, follow that algorithm that we discussed with, are they BRCA mutated? Yes or no? Because that Olaparib has a 60% response rate. Things like these HER2 low patients who can get that antibody drug conjugate, higher response rates, and we need a response. Otherwise, do something like what we talked about in the neoadjuvant setting, right? These chemotherapy drugs like an anthracycline, cyclophosphamide, something like that. You could do dual chemotherapy or single agent chemotherapy, but that's just an important thing to know. I think we really did boil down a very complicated topic. And Dan, I think you really nicely consolidated all the information in, in what you just said. And of course, guys, please do check out our show notes as we've been saying over and over again, but hopefully that'll help clarify things that are still a little bit murky after you listen through the first time. I think that wraps up another fantastic episode of The Fellow on Call. Until next time, we'll see you all later. 